0: Welcome to part two of our conversation with Stuart Calderwood. This is a really wonderful episode filled with so much wisdom and coaching experience and some really, really wonderful stories at the end. So we hope you enjoy. Thanks.
1: There's another way in which the failure, so-called, is valuable. I mean, first of all, If you're really coaching in the biggest sense, it's not just to become a faster runner. And like many, many coaches have, you know, been cited as wisdom dispensers. I would like, and I got this from other good coaches I've had, you know, to think that I'm helping people deal with other things than it's the 21 mile mark. Do I take a goo? You know, like that's not our real emphasis here. It's more like, things are very difficult, and what does that make me find out about myself?
0: Um, What is your favorite track event to coach?
1: To coach? When I was coaching high school, it was definitely the mile. Uh, I found that to be the place where all the skills uh, combined. You You had to have a certain amount of all the major running skills, you couldn't just have endurance, you couldn't just have speed, you couldn't just do short training, you had to do some long running as well. And it was wasn't tactics free, or like a sprint race is, or even a one move only type of race like the 800 is. Yeah, it was one where certain things could happen and then be reversed, or different people could do different things at different times, and all have a chance to excel. Uh, you know, you had your front runners and kickers. And, and and it was a little more interesting in high school for me because there are no rabbits in mm-hmm. those races um, as there are in the pro races. You know, you didn't get people just running behind somebody for a certain amount of time who wasn't even a factor in the race, but rather everybody was trying to win. And, and you had the, you know, the newcomers making the really terrible beginner mistakes that, you know, you watched happening in front of you and kind of cringed inwardly and (laughs) knew what was going to come of this poor kid that had just run his first lap of this high school mile race in 59 seconds. They were heading for a 89 on lap three.
0: Yeah. It's a, uh, you're a good mile coach. It's a a distance that there's not much room for error.
1: Not a lot. No, but (laughs) let's see now we, we coached you to run 82nd laps. And you ran seventy nine point nines? Like, I think it was seventy nine point eight. I
0: think it was point eight. Yeah. yeah seventy nine point <laughs> eight per lap
1: uh, in your fifth avenue mile.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That that, that came out well. It was you like know. a year of working on that, yeah. Yeah.
1: You had this and and you, and that led you to the track that you end up naming the show for, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted to give you a short speed workout on Saturdays to yep. get you used to faster than mile pace, which is something very few people run in training.
0: Yeah.
2: I remember right after that race, you. I wasn't, I wasn't at the gathering afterward, but you texted me and said, Stuart just said a year's worth of strides to get yeah. five <laughs> seconds off your mile time. That's right. Yeah.
1: He's run four, mm, 524 the year before? Yeah. 525? 524. 524 went down to 518.8, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And the year before that, it was 544.
1: 544, which was a big or deal. 543, yeah. I remember yeah. we called that one too.
0: Yeah, yeah. You called that one. You have sent me this whole long email about yeah. how to run it, and
1: and I said something like, if you run, do absolutely everything right, I could see you running 5:45, yeah. <laughs> and you ran 5:44 or something. <laughs> but um, the the question though it does remain. You know, a lot of people think it's not the coach; it's just the suggestion made to the athlete that that has total faith in the coach makes the the athlete able to run whatever the coach said that's true well
0: I trust everything that you say so you were like go do this I'm like "All right." Yeah.
1: you don't don't usually get that out of adults I got that out of high school kids all the time some kid would say could I make the state meet and I would never answer him dishonestly but I only said once I only said yes to that question once but it was true and that kid did make the state meet but when I told him that because I wouldn't have told him anything that wasn't true he certainly believed it and then trained accordingly and ran a 413 mile in high school
0: exactly well that's the most important thing is that I know that you're only going to tell me the truth so when you right. say that I can do something then you really believe it so then as an adult it's nice to be told what to do sometimes <laughs> keep it simple it's black and white yes you can yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if you run a whole lot of strides at that pit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: but to a degree you also let us come to that conclusion a yeah. bit right um, I like that um, speaking of that we can dive more into the coaching aspect of things I've heard you talk a lot about letting the day be you know you, you you can't predict what the day is going to be right? right so i think in coaching you how do you define success in both workouts and races because yeah. it's not just the time
1: well you all you often have to overcome a runner's um belief that she or he has done badly because mm-hmm. the conditions were not ideal or something that happened in the race wasn't ideal and It's so rare, I mean, you're gonna end up your career, you're gonna finish any running career at some point with one best time, one. Maybe you break it five times on the way, Mm -hmm. but so you have like five great races where you run faster than you've ever run in your life. And all the rest of them, I mean, how many 5Ks are we gonna end up having done? And how many marathons, how many half marathons? I've probably run 80 half marathons. I don't know, you know, there's so many of them. (laughs) And how many are your best ones? Three, you know, you can remember the three great ones where you made some sort of breakthrough but all the rest of them look worse, but are they really? Because I think, you know, if I can talk about my own running for a second, um, my best marathon as I see it, well I have two, neither of them anywhere near my fastest one. Mm. One of them was because it was an age group thing, and the other one because I was tactically smart in a terrible situation. And I ran one of my slower marathons, it was a 2.57 in, in Puerto Rico in the World Masters Games. And it was 85 degrees and 85% humidity. And I was 13th at halfway and third at the finish and I didn't speed up. Wow! So what does that mean? That means everybody else went out too fast. Mm-hmm. And that's all that got me a medal. You know, it was not being a good runner really. I'm sure a lot of those people are faster than I, but they didn't treat the first half of that race. Like you needed to treat it, which was like a run, not a race. You had to absolutely cruise it or you would overheat, you know? And I was already scared because I'm not not that good in heat. But I also, and another thing that can make a race, you know, meaningful to you is how well you prepare. Like I went there 10 days before that race because I actually had other events in the same meet. But I was there 10 days training in that weather, in Mm. the heat of the day and acclimatizing. And I also learned how to carry ice in a little belt pack and have people handing me stuff to pour over myself at more times than, than just the aid stations. I mean, you know, there are lots of so to speak, tactics or tricks you know, to use to outdo people that may have more talent than you have. So for me though, the two best marathons in my, in my history are not particularly fast. They're just ones where I got everything I could right. And that's how I try to coach people, to appreciate what they've done, not what the day was like or what the course was like because they can't affect that, mm-hmm. but rather, what did that race mean? In fact, here's a funny story for you. So when I was in high school, you know, cross country coaching, most of the courses are hilly and you can't really compare times. Mm -hmm. So I made a formula that I would use kind of like you now do age grading or sometimes you do like a cross event comparisons where you say what's that five K worth for a ten K? You know, there are different formulas that people have come up with. And I had one where I would take a flat course time, you know, the fastest course I could think of, and what a person had done on it. And then look at the very front of the race and grade back to okay, the winner now on this course ran a minute 10 slower. So then I would take the percent of that winning time that that 110, one minute and 10 seconds was, and I would add that percent to anybody else's time and see if they had done as well as their flat course time, mm-hmm. you know, that was my way of letting a high school kid think he or she had run a great mm-hmm. race, right? So they would started my kids started to say what 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 did i do on the stewart conversion time you know? <laughs> and and i would have and i actually had a parent get really mad at me because one girl broke her daughter's course record on my conversion time and I say, well, no, it's not the record, but it, it's equivalent to what I think is a so little funny. better than that time. What am I going to say? Lie to you? I'm That's not going to lie to the other kid and say, no, you didn't break yeah. the equivalent of the, the school record, but yeah, it was a s- sticky situation there, but my favorite was a kid who ran for me for four years, went on to college, did not run cross country, he grew really tall, I think he played basketball, he grew to about six, four or five, joined a fraternity and was rousted out of bed in the middle of Greek week to run a desperation 5K. We need someone to run a 5K. You ran cross country, didn't you? This kid's name was Eric Snip. So in case he ever listens to a really obscure podcasts, he yeah. he's immortalized now. Eric Snip was dragged out of bed, having having drunk a lot the night before and having not trained as a runner for his entire freshman year and made to run a 5K for his Greek week fraternity competition and he finished it and he ran hard and later told a friend he wanted to know what the Stuart conversion time was (laughs) for no training for a year, drunk, (laughs) drunk to the point of throwing up in the race and afterward and, uh, you know, Having been told about the race, you know, two hours before, it and dragged out of bed, so I think that I will I, have to try really hard to come up with what that conversion is. But
0: that is so But funny. it's yeah.
2: safe to say he probably PR'd.
1: Yeah, I, I think. Well, you know, just to please, you know, to make him not mad at his fraternity uh, brothers, I think he has to be told at least that he PR'd. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this sort of points to one of your wonderful skills as a coach. You're really good at predicting people's times, <laughs> like uncannily so.
1: Yeah, you know, but it's, it's based on stuff. That's not uncanny, Mm Yeah, like, but I, yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to try to predict things. You don't want to make someone feel bad though. And like predict, they're going to be faster than they are. I think we just, uh, lost, I lost my perfect prediction record from Ben Delaney, but he ran a great, great race. We can't make that sound any worse than it is. Ben Delaney, just one of our assistant coaches and good GT runners just won his age group in a, in a 10 K in New Jersey this morning.
0: He PR'd by two minutes.
1: By two minutes. 41.27 for 10K. And uh, yeah, I think I had him. 40.57. So exactly 50, 30 seven, seconds. 40.57. But yeah, that, that was maybe a little over optimistic. What I was doing there was equating it to his recent 5K in Washington Heights, but having to take time off of that 5K because that's mm-hmm. a hilly course and he was running on a flat course. So I gave him a faster 5K time and then I tried to equate that to a 10K. You know, right. it gets tricky. You yeah. start getting too many variables. And- Losing losing the the plot. But it's fun
0: to watch you do the calculations because you kind of go off into this other mathematical place. I just see numbers flying. Right, right.
2: Or it's like this hypothetical bubble. It's like, uh, you know, okay, take this hill out. This this was the total elevation. This is a flat course, 38 degrees today, but it was 42 that day.
1: And, and you, you're tempted to use it to give people excuses too. Like after the race, it's like, well, now let's look at that. Yeah. You have how many clothes did you have on? You had big gloves on. <laughs> you had thick socks. You had two layers on your upper body. Now, if you had had this on a flat course on a 50 degree day with no extra clothes and you would pace yourself a little better I think that would have been a great race I,
2: I have a story to that because when I ran in New York City half my I first time about in talk about that. in 2017 I ran one thirty forty nine. Yeah. and then two days later we were at our group post group training coffee and the pictures came out and I showed you I was like oh look the race pictures here and you looked at my outfit and you're like well there's your 50 seconds <laughs> Why are you wearing so many layers?
0: And you ran the first six miles of that race with me. And as soon as you met up with me, you looked at me, you said you're wearing too many
1: clothes. (laughs) I really like, I really believe people wear too much stuff. If you look at the front of any race, you know, they're wearing shorts and singlets. Even Mm -hmm. if it's like just this recent New York half, what was the temperature? 35 at the start? Yeah. None of the pros had anything on their legs. None of them. Nor probably on their arms. A few had hats, maybe a few gloves. But why is that? They're not different than we are. They just want to run fast, so they don't wear that extra stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and they're going to be out there a little less long, I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely pared down my outfits since.
1: Yeah, or at faster. least take off the baggy yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah,
0: the baggy stuff.
2: So, follow up to that. Just speaking of coaching style, how do you define success? And the opposite of that is obviously not everybody's going to have the race of their life all the time. And almost it, never. Almost yeah. never. It's it's a rare occasion yeah. when that happens, and you, um, it's actually in a, so. To me, the way I, I'm a newbie of newbies, so I'm thinking in terms of just my very short coaching career. Looking at runners, I feel like their failures are what add up to a successful race eventually. In um, a couple
1: of ways, they're valuable. I would say, yeah, by making the mistakes and then knowing not to make them the next time. But there's another way in which the failure, so-called, is valuable. I mean, first of all, if you're really coaching in the biggest sense, it's not just to become a faster runner. And like many, many coaches have you know, been cited as wisdom dispensers you know, of various kinds that transfer over. It's why coaches go and give talks to businesses. You know, they mm-hmm. always want the message on how to be winners you know, and translate sports winning into success in some other field but I would like to think, I mean, if we really go back to what the source of this stuff is like running and all these pursuits that were in the ancient Olympics were, were to make people better at something really difficult. That wasn't that thing. It was really to go fight a battle. Mm -hmm. And, and so let's take the mindset of a person that's going out to risk his life or her life uh, and has to rely on skills they've learned to do that. Um, what's our equivalent now? Well, we have all kinds of life situations that are much more important than whether or not you're on fast in a race. Mm -hmm. So I would like, and I got this from other good coaches I've had, you know, to think that I'm helping people deal with other things, than it's the 21 mile mark, do I take a goo? You know, like, that's not our real emphasis here. It's Mm -hmm. more like, things are very difficult. And what does that make me find out about myself? Mm -hmm. And it's not the only way to find out about yourself. There are many ways that aren't touched by sports, like whether you're uh, humorous or creative or whether you're uh, lovable. But whether you're resilient and determined and uh, you know, uh, can handle uh, unusual obstacles, those things are really valuable to be used all over the place. And so I'd like to think that the way we coach distance runners would make people great in a crisis, for instance, of any other kind, a, ki- a kind that was... Well, I won't say marathons are not uh, dangerous because you can get in pretty big trouble in a marathon, but uh, even like medical trouble, even we've all known about cases where people mm. die, die in marathons and the weather can be pretty bad. But if you had a group of people stranded out somewhere with a broken down bus or something, I think a lot of them, if you had a group of distance runners, they they'd survive better, you know, yeah. because they would have dealt with the situations of being out of their element maybe and test it yeah. and and uh, put up against, uh, you know, obstacles that aren't automatically easy to overcome. So, so yeah, I think co- coaches have to, to take, if I'm going to let someone learn from something that happens in a race, it doesn't have to be that they, they ran really fast, it could be that they had an absolutely terrible day by their standards, you know, they ran a slow time, people that they wanted to beat, beat them by minutes and minutes. Um, they didn't feel good from mile one, but maybe they persevered. Maybe that, mm-hmm. that didn't make them negative. Maybe they still ran as fast as they could on that day. And that would be, I think, a greater accomplishment in a lot of ways than someone who feels perfect and goes and runs, you know, the best time and faster than they run before because while you're doing that it builds on itself and makes you elated inside and you're thinking oh my gosh I just came by a five mile PR and I'm on my way to 10k you know all this stuff is like that's easy to do Mm -hmm. well when you when you know that's going on Mm -hmm. but what about like you come by the 5k and you go I just ran slower than I run in an actual 5k and I've got another (laughs) 5k to do Mm -hmm. you know that's where you find out something maybe about how you deal with difficulty. Mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. so I don't think it's always a I mean, failure is such a judgmental word, I would mm-hmm. say, like, is, but do we have to be all nicey, nice and say, it? it's a learning experience. Yeah. I don't know, it's, it's just more experience. It's, it's something that's affecting you. Everything goes into you and stays mm-hmm. there, right? Yeah. It's like, it all becomes that's part of you for yeah. later, you have memories of it, your body even has kind of memories of it, like once you've done something once, you're you're calloused to that thing, and you can do it better in the next better the next time.
2: It's interesting what you just said, like I almost see I had a question here that was like, how do you define success for a coach? And I think you just answered that. like in like you're trying to instill Probably. this holistic approach of like making people more resilient and yeah. how to grow from. and i in so in the design world, I always run I'm running design workshops with my teams and coming up with ideas. And one of the things that keeps coming up all the time, we're, there's a phrase that's called uh, fail early and fail fast. Mm-hmm. So the idea is like, don't try to build something for a year and then test it and figure out that it doesn't right, work. So sure. try to do something very little, test it really quickly. But uh, you talked about failure having a judgmental negative connotation to it. And uh, one of the design talks I went to from a designer that I really respect, and she said, I, I don't like the fail, fail early, fail fast. I just think of it as practice
1: yeah in terms of well, that yeah. I mean what you've done doesn't need a label in some exactly. senses at all like if someone goes and runs from point A to point B why is it a failure if they don't run a certain speed mm-hmm. there's just that's just our judgment of it that when we, we set up this thing that is the whole purpose of it for at least the people near the front and many people it's kind of being watered down lately though right like yeah. I like competition yeah. it has value to me and when I hear that people don't want to call the runs that we do races anymore it, it's dismaying to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, am fine with them going and running it as a workout, whatever, but that they never want to find out how, how fast they are. Therefore, how, how strong they are, how their training is, let them become better at something. That would be a shame to me Mm -hmm. if they never find that out. But, um, they say run a time that wasn't as fast as they ran on the same course last year. Well, not even needing to find some sort of equivalent that makes it look better. I'm just saying, That was what they did that day and Mm -hmm. doesn't need to be labeled at all. There can be factors that we'll never understand, never be able to quantify as time or whatever. But even if it wasn't as fast as they could have run that day, they still did something that had value. Mm -hmm. They got fitter, almost certainly. They got the experience, almost certainly. They, they might have memories of the thing that don't involve where they placed or what time they ran that are valuable for them. As people, not necessarily as distance runners. So, yeah, I, I think it, it's too confining to say that race was a failure. Yeah. I mean, the goal may have been the wrong goal too. Like people have mm-hmm. set unre- unreasonable goals for themselves that that I try to dissuade them from trying to do. They usually involve round numbers, yeah. <laughs> and then they're a failure if they didn't. I mean, I always tell the story of this woman I know, who's personal best in the marathon is three hours and 55 seconds and she truly considers herself to have failed in her running career Mm. because she never broke three hours and I can't get it through her head that you know three hours in that sense depends on the fact that we split the clock face up into 60 parts instead Mm. of say 50 or 100 and if if it had been split into 50 parts instead of 60 parts what you call three hours would be 3.13.01 3.13.01 and mm-hmm. you know wouldn't mean anything and the time you did might have been just under 3.10 or you know some other round number that you liked. I mean it's just irrelevant really. Yeah, you can what just we change the unit the t-
2: to seconds and say yeah. this is how many seconds I ran for the marathon. Yes. Right? And all of a sudden it doesn't. And it has
1: no significance whatsoever next to the next number yeah. and yet people make huge investments in these mm-hmm. breaking round number type of times.
0: So in 40 years of coaching you've probably come across lots of different personalities so you how do you talk someone out of that i mean there is it
1: sometimes they're just obstinate almost uncoachable people who will listen to you and then go off and do just what they were doing before and not care right and you know i don't want to be the pot calling the kettle black i try to break i'm trying to do a thing now that involves breaking a round number but it's just because no one's ever done it yeah so um but uh i mean they're good landmarks, you know, you can yeah. see it easily three hours, whatever. Right. But, uh, that's why that breaking two things right. become so big, you know, right. but does anyone really think that he failed because he ran two hours and 25 seconds? And yeah. it's so incredible faster than any human beings ever run before. How can that be a failure? The only way it can be a failure is because someone cared about a round number.
0: Right. Putting too much value yeah. on the wrong thing.
1: Yeah. But coaching people that are the opposite of you that like won't believe what you say. I mean, it's, it's frustrating. As it's irritating yeah. almost. And people won't say uh, that what I find in New York most likely because of the culture of success that's built up here a lot, mm-hmm. you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere and you know, all that is that people are too hard on themselves. They yeah. think they haven't succeeded when I'll see, mm-hmm. I think more clearly from the outside that they really have.
0: Yeah.
1: And I mean, if you've run your fastest time, you cannot complain about that. It's it bothers me to death when people complain about a personal record. Well, I really wanted to run such and such. It's like you just ran faster than you've ever run in your life. And there's going to be a lot of your life where you cannot do that anymore. And you're not appreciating it. Mm-hmm. You know. And you should because it, it may never happen again. And, and yet some arbitrary other thing was the goal mm-hmm. that, that didn't come from anything scientific. Mm-hmm. And because it hasn't been achieved, the person's unhappy. And I don't, I, I'm frustrated by that. I would like them to be happy because they've done something that took work and that you know they hadn't done before.
0: You're really good at helping people to see that. I've seen you you do it with me and you do it with Ali and yeah. I've seen you do it with other people. It's like, well, let's kind of reframe this and look yeah. at it from a different I mean, a perspective. whole it's lots of variables. Numbers, I mean,
1: the yeah. big ones that are so obvious are the course. You can't com- compare yeah. two courses in a road race. But even if it was a track race, like everyone likes to say that tr- the track world is more cut and dried and you know you can't fake it because everyone's times are you know on the same surface yeah but they're not on the same surface because it used to be Mm -hmm. dirt and they're not in the Mm -hmm. same shoes and they're not with the same training and they're not the same knowledge of who did what before you like people are always asking like why did a bunch of people break the four minute mile right after Roger Bannister did I mean it it sped up a lot like 42 days later the second guy broke four not a whole ton of them did Mm -hmm. it there was some kind of motivational speaker that claimed that you know 10 people broke it in the next year no that didn't happen but they did start taking it down under four by some pretty big jumps very very soon and now it's down to 343 so it, it was nine years that it didn't go under four it stayed 401 and i think it, you know the reason that no one ran 355 then was that no one believed you could even run under four. So that mm-hmm. was the, the unusual thinker was someone that's scientific-minded like Bannister who thought, well, there's no reason why you shouldn't be right. able to run under four minutes. Um, but then were they thinking about 350? No. Mm-hmm. The next person's thinking about breaking Roger Bannister's record, right. breaking you know, 358 and then 357. And you get the outliers like Herb Elliott who took three seconds off the record. Uh, but 350 wasn't on anybody's radar mm-hmm. screen then you know but now that now that's commonplace for the yeah. best best people
0: do you think that will happen with the two-hour marathon or is it happening kind like- of has to i guess yeah.
1: yes i mean i think there are probably people alive now that can run what kipchoge's run and 20 years from now and it'll probably be hard to distinguish what factors in, were involved like will they be other drug things will they the right. other shoe things will they be course mm-hmm. things i've had long ago i came up with this idea that they should run, if they really want to find out how fast marathons people can run, they should build a, um, a straightaway, tartan track straightaway for 26 miles and put it in a cylinder that's temperature controlled with a allowable tailwind and have you know the best people in the world line up and run 26 miles in a straight line. And also, just for the heck of it, have stadiums that go alongside it and move with it.
0: Yeah, that's you know, great. So I would love can, to run that.
1: People can, can sit in these stands and have the front runners right in front of them the whole time. That's so cool. Yeah, and see what they could run then. I mean, that's faster than what Kipchoge just ran on that course. That uh, That car race course had hills in it. Yeah, it was actually a rolling course. I mm-hmm. was surprised by that. It was it's not as flat as Berlin, flat, yeah. mm-hmm. but he had the windbreak. Right, that was not With legal. the triangle, right? Yeah, right. So keep that out because yeah. then it won't count. But I don't think what I just described would be illegal if it was a real race. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they'll get out of two hours. You know, they've got to. It's two two hours and twenty five seconds. Now, with slightly altered, right? You know, conditions. Yeah, they'll break mm-hmm. it.
0: So speaking of coming under round numbers, um, can we talk about you? Would you like to talk about your goal? It's getting
1: tougher as it goes because I keep getting hurt and then I, I have to delay it. And it's a game, you know, the whole thing's a game. That's that's what's nice about running. We realize it's not life and death. It's a game. And the fact that there are lots of people, there's something like 30 people now who have broken three hours in five different decades, but no one's ever done it in six kind of can't help but interest me since I've got five and I'm in my sixth now, you know, in which I could break it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it would have been nice to have a shot when I had just turned 60 and I didn't because I had recurring calf and hamstring injuries. But now I'm healthy at the moment and I just ran a half marathon at that pace. So it's not out of the question and I could get better. But you're fighting the, uh, there's the fitter but older dichotomy. So I'm gonna. Maybe I'll just have to go by age grade. (laughs) Well,
0: one of my favorite things you said is is that there comes a point where you aren't running your fastest, but the goal is to slow down the slowest. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I wanted to
1: to call a book for for masters runners. Getting slower, slower.
0: <laughs> well, I have this like wonderful kind of running fantasy of you and Ali and I all being healthy at the same time and getting sub three together. I think that would be really fun.
1: It's far fetched, but not impossible. Yes, ever. it's not. It's happening.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's Don't we happening. have to
1: work on that today? We have to. Yes, go out and try to Yes. Yeah, run we're going for a long runs. run
0: soon. Are yeah. you saying we should wrap
2: this up soon? No, we're no, not, not to wrap gonna, it up. A
1: no, no but, um, <laughs> well, you're two. Both of you are capable of breaking three, and absolutely, definitely. I mean, I can say that from first-hand experience of watching you run, I watched Ali run his best marathon, Mm -hmm. 306, um, and it was his first road marathon. All he had done before that was a trail race that took forever because it was really, really (laughs) hilly, and Anne ran what I think almost everyone agrees is a sub-three effort on the Boston course on the worst day in the race's history last year when she ran 309, which was a personal best five minutes under Berlin time, that's the fastest course in the world. Who does that? Uh, Yeah, who does that? (laughs) Um, And I love to to notice that Desi Linden won the race in 2.39 when her PR on that course is 2.23 or two. Mm -hmm. And so that's like 17 minutes off her best and you improved your best by five minutes. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? If you took 17 minutes, less to run that race it would have been yeah 252 252 yeah Yeah. no but I think you were probably worth right around three hours that day yeah Yeah. because I don't think Desi Linden raced it full out for much of the race because everyone was like sheltering running in a pack very tactical yeah
2: can I take us back to one thing you said earlier uh and I know you have you you have told us some stories about this about other runners and I want you to go into that the theme of the question is coaching the system of running versus coaching the person.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, because you talked about how you you can teach the system of running to people, but then in essence, you really have to find out who the athlete is and who yeah. they are and have to coach <laughs> that person and what's going to work for them. I've seen you do that so well with uh-huh. different people.
1: At the time that uh, I was more involved in the top running world than ever, any other was following my teammate from college, Steve Scott, who had the American record in the mile for 26 years until Alan Webb broke it. And uh, he ran 347.69. And when the when he ran that, it was the second fastest time anyone had ever run. And the fastest time was Sebastian Coe, who ran 347.33. So Mm 0.36 faster. And those guys were the same age they had the same personal best, clearly, to three-tenths three of a second um, in the same event. So what would a coach who was given the two of them to coach do? And the obvious thing would be you'd probably train them fairly similarly since they were the same age person at the same times mm-hmm. at the same event. But the fact was Co. was a guy who had come up from the 400 meters as a young guy and was very good at that. And then the 800 was his main event all his life. In fact, he was a better 800 runner and set a record in that, that lasted as long as Steve's American record did in the mile. But, um, he, he ran the mile almost on 800 training and broke the world record. So he's Mm -hmm. incredibly talented at short stuff. Whereas Steve Scott had very little sprint speed and couldn't beat these guys in the last few hundred meters almost ever, so would have to run on strength. And he ran very high mileage for a miler. He ran 90 mile weeks. So Steve ran with teams and was coached by the same coach his whole life, but it was our school coach, Len Miller, um, and did very hard, long intervals, things like 2400s, even 2800s we did whereas Co ran very short, very intense workouts, things like five 800s, but all in 150. Oh, yeah. Now Steve would have had trouble running one 800 in 150 oh, in a workout. Yeah. So they were utterly different physically. But their strengths, if, if worked on enough, and presumably their weaknesses also addressed, got them to basically the same exact point, where they could both run 347.3 or point six. In the mile so if you look at that and then you look at any number of people that you're having to coach at once the model I think for what you have to do is what Bill Bowerman did when he was coaching Oregon he made a program up for every runner and lots of coaches are not like that they're they're very adamant about their system or their methods mm-hmm. and if you don't conform to their methods you go somewhere else because you know I coach like this and I think that's as limited as you can you know, have without firing the person. I mean, like maybe some people just, I mean, Ryan Hall famously said he could never get any good at Stanford because they ran too hard. They ran hard all the time. Mm. And I mean, he did fine, but he, he got really good when he left Stanford and trained on his own and mm. took easy days. Now, some people say easy days don't work for them. Uh, I just read somewhere in some running publication that, uh, I forget now who it was but someone was saying that he thought the problem with with American mm. runners is that they take too many easy days or their easy days are too easy. I mean mm. maybe maybe meb kafleski said that I'm not sure. But um but you never know. It's not that one mm. is right and one is wrong. It's that one person thrives on this kind of training which would destroy somebody else like if steve scott had done co's training he wouldn't have even been fit and he probably would have pulled three muscles in his legs mm-hmm. whereas co did steve's training he would have broken down because he would have been running twice as much as he was familiar with mm-hmm. you couldn't have given them each other's training neither one would have been any good but with someone caring enough to find right. out what worked for them and yeah. then going along with it and fine-tuning it they both became great like the best two male right. milers the fastest two that had ever lived at one point. So yeah, you can't inflict your ideas on somebody else. You can give them guidance, sure, and you can, but you have to pay attention. A coach mm-hmm. has to pay as much attention mm-hmm. to the runner as the runner does to the coach. And mm-hmm. I think some coaches don't get that.
0: You are so good at that. You're well, really thanks, good Well, thanks, but you know, yeah. we're, I mean,
1: really it's hard for you. I wish I could claim that now, but with group training, it's pretty tough yeah. because you've got one hour to deal with people of all different backgrounds and speeds. And, you know, I don't even see a lot of them because Mm -hmm. I have to give them to the group four coach or the group three coach. And I'm coaching group two or group five. And so I feel frustrated in my roadrunner job to some degree because of not being able to tune things to an individual as much Mm -hmm. as I'd like. Because they, it's like, you know, they have an hour and we've got to give them something they can do. There's a lot of. I feel like we're giving them something valuable, but. Mm It's a good thing that we don't have them every day because I I like advising people on what to do on the other days. That's where I can make a right. difference, you mm-hmm. know. Cuz one person may have to take every day between hard workouts off, and others might be doing 10 miles on those days, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Yeah. Well, this is such a good example of how it's so important not to compare your training mm-hmm. to other people's. And I think we talk Ali and I talk about this a lot, but the negative influences of social media and tracking it, programs and you know people. that's been
1: going on way be before social media there was a funny thing that was um, revealed the back page of runner's world magazine used to have a, a page on how people trained and it had a, a world-class runner and it had a week of their training oh, and no. it turned out <laughs> for instance one guy Juma Ikanga from Kenya who had won Boston uh he had his training listed there as an 180 mile week. And now people have run that much. I mean, I know pretty definitely Derek Clayton ran that much when he had the world record Australian guy back and his, his training logs exist and they're meticulous, you know, and I don't think he made them up. But, um, but Ikanga, after that went in the back page of runner's world, Lots of people read it and thought, well, geez, I've never there's no way I'm ever going to be any good at the marathon because look what you have to do, you have to run 180 miles. That's like a marathon a day. Mm -hmm. Well, since then, someone told me that he knew Juma Ikanga and he said, you kidding me, that guy never ran anything close to that.
0: Yeah, they just made it up
1: to psych out all the other runners. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You. <laughs> and you know there's someone that tried it.
2: <laughs> he kind him of was like, well, who doubled my mileage?
0: I, yeah, I actually
1: <laughs> probably don't think many of the world-class runners read Runner's World. But yeah, that's true. No it's slight to Runner's Road, but that was that's considered the, uh, the layman's magazine. But <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, you don't know what they're saying, yeah. whether it's true or not. You don't know if someone actually did the workout times that they're supposed to have done. Um, yeah, People used to, at the Olympic training track... In the days before their first races, people used to go out and do kind of show-off workouts Mm. and get other people scared by Mm. watching them do certain workouts. That's kind of risky, though, because how close to your race can you do some unnaturally fast-looking workout? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you never never know what anyone else does. And so it's really true what you said. You cannot judge yourself or guide yourself by someone else's training. It's not going to work. It would be just total chance if it worked.
0: Yeah. I mean, from my own experience, I'm a low mileage runner, as you know. So if I start looking at the volume that other people are doing, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I doing? Actually, see,
1: now I have to take issue with you there. (laughs) You think you're a low mileage runner. (laughs) Not anymore, I guess. But have you found out that high mileage does not work for you?
0: Uh, I don't know. I was getting close to 60 for Boston, and that's when Uh stuff started happening. Did it work? It did work. (laughs) And what was your training for
1: Chicago per week?
0: 30 was my peak
1: so you doubled your <laughs> training for chicago from chicago to boston one year to a year and a half later a yeah. year and a half later yeah. and you ran 322 at boston mm-hmm. uh at chicago 309 at boston so Same we're going second, in the right direction yeah. still so maybe so I could, what would happen at 70 would it would you run faster or yeah and and yeah. then again there are times of year when you would run higher mileage and mm-hmm. then times a year when you run lower. And also there'd be times of like what you say, like high mileage, but maybe it's only every other week you run high mileage. Right. There's all kinds of degrees it yeah. is what I'm saying. There's like putting that label on yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm not a high mileage, I'm a low mileage runner. Uh-huh. Well, so far, let's okay. just say so far you have run your times on lower mileage than most people who run those times. That's true. Right, but I see what you're saying, yeah. I'm gonna take away your label. Okay.
0: Okay. You are good. not
1: a low mileage runner. You don't know that. <laughs> Schooled on the podcast.
0: <laughs> it makes it more impressive. It schools me all
1: the time. It makes I love it, it. <laughs> but think about it. It makes you actually you yes. look better this mm-hmm. way. You look better because you've somehow managed to run three oh nine on sixty or less miles, sixty or fewer miles a week. Yeah. And, yeah. and that load, hasn't
2: gone through the S C T Stuart. Calderwood time conversion.
1: Yeah, not at um, all. Yeah. Not it, except it did because the Boston conversion right there was conversion. pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, and and yet you probably ran sixty miles a week once. One week. Yeah, it know? was
0: fifty I made it I you was didn't like fifty seven or something. Fifty seven
1: no. miles one yeah. week. Yeah. Now that would be for most people that speed that would be a down week. Yeah. That would be yeah. a, a rest week between mm-hmm. their 70, 80 yeah. mile a week mm-hmm. months a week. I'm
0: looking forward to trying higher, you yeah. know, seeing where And it, you have to
1: gradually build Do up gradually. and and it's 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 other variables like your age figures yeah. into it are you as high a mileage runner now as you were at another age i can't run the miles now that yeah. i did when i was in my 30s but i'm probably still a high mileage runner mm-hmm. for 60 year olds mm-hmm. yeah you know so there's yeah. there're too many variables, there's, too mm-hmm. there, many variables. There are more than you'll ever be able to make scientifically provable as uh-huh. the reasons for anything so you have to be it's got the creativity aspect yeah. as well yeah you know, I'd love you're that. always kind of balance things out like and then you think about like when i make a program up for someone i actually picture them thinking about looking at the program and going uh-huh. oh my god that's too much i can't do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or oh yeah i could do that mm-hmm. and you have to get where there's a line there mm-hmm. somewhere because it's mental too
0: yeah yeah you're I did not mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry if I did, but right. it, I just got excited because we've had so many conversations, particularly around the Boston training. And we were on the phone, I remember one time, and you described, you said, this is going to sound really weird, but maybe you'll understand it. And you started talking about Michelangelo and being a sculptor and that you're chiseling away at the marble. <laughs> and I was like, Taking yeah, away I what you don't need. Take, yeah. It's, it's yeah. the art of subtraction. Yeah. And you you were talking about how... It's really about figuring out almost how little you can do and get the most out of it, about valuable workouts and not tipping that line into overtraining.
1: But what I was talking about in that case was your willingness to do whatever you needed to do, which is like you had unlimited raw material, like the big stone, and now we take away what you don't need, which is so much more pleasant for a coach to work with than someone who comes with the desire to do less and you have to try to get them to do more—that's right, right. much oh, that's more of a tooth-pulling operation. Right. You know, you just don't like mm-hmm. the process of trying to con- convince somebody that no, really, you have to do more, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. they don't want to. I mean, that's that happens often. You find with kids who are talented, mm. but they don't particularly love what they're doing. That someone's gotten them into something because they're good at it, right. and because they're good at it, they feel like they have to try to stay with it. And those, um, they usually don't continue. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, because they don't really love running. When someone says, you know how fast you are? You have, to, you have to try to make the varsity team, or you have to try to make state, or, you know, you yeah. could get a scholarship, you know, mm-hmm. people get goaded into continuing thing, at things that they may not really love. And in, that, in those cases, you tend, as a coach, to have to try to supply them with things that they don't have. Mm -hmm. Instead of taking away what they don't need to use, you have to give them what what you would already have, like the desire to do harder workouts. You impress me, both of you, with the way you do your rehab stuff when you're injured. The, The PT person gives you five exercises to do. You do all five of them every single day. Whereas most people, I think, when the PT person gives them those exercises... The doctor himself a- assumes, as in the case of Derek St. Thomas, who you're probably going to put on this show, mm-hmm. that in his case, assumes that you might do a few of them some of the time, you know, <laughs> and that's, that'd be a good result. Mm-hmm. Right, and right. in your two cases, you're so determined to get back that you do every last thing. And yeah. so you don't need to be told, you just need to be told what to do, not you should do this and why, or, you know, no, don't take a break from that, you mm-hmm. know that you would otherwise want to take you don't want to you want to do the, do what's necessary and that's another way in which the sport thing even injuries look how look how even the injuries and how you treat them makes you more disciplined and yeah. and patient mm-hmm. and all those oh, things yeah. that are so hard to be that's my downfall is like trying to be patient with injuries i think i probably would have had half as many and they would have lasted half as long if i had shut down earlier and taken more of a break right if you knew that if you did something all the time, you would not get that injury again, that you would continue to do it, right? Yeah. But I'm victim of that too, I'll, yeah. I'll, or a, mm-hmm. a guilty of that. As soon as something's gone, like now yeah. my calf's okay, so am I doing my calf raises every day? No, but I should, and now yeah. you know I tell myself to, and I do them sometimes. Yeah. I'll do them. I end up usually doing them like while standing at the counter waiting for something, yeah, <laughs> exactly,
0: or the subway. i on yeah, the platform. The <laughs> <train>. <laughs> Just don't get too close to the edge.
1: Going back
2: to your, you said there are so many variables involved, and I love how you think about when someone says something, you immediately, there's, I feel like there's a...
1: When they use absolutes. Yeah, there's like yeah.
2: a pot that breaks out. You're like, well, yeah. what about this? Like, yeah. there's like 50 other things. You, I think, I forget who, it might have been one of our assistant coaches who was talking about, hey, I, you know, I, when I used to train, like, uh, for marathons, I would go up, my longest run would be like a 30 miler, or like a right. 24 or 26, right, you're right. like, well... yeah. You pointed at me, you're like, Well if you're five three hundred and ten pounds, maybe you can get away with it, right? Like I would mm-hmm. never do that. So there was all of a sudden yeah. this other variable of like, yeah, you know, there's this part involved too. Of and yeah. I, I love like there's all these little things that you have to I have a question here on my list that says, How important is the science? versus I think because a lot of times Anna and I were talking about this before you came and we were we were saying how Anybody you ask a lot of times, they ask, oh, well, are the event you're training for aerobic or anaerobic? And if it's this, yeah. do this. If it's this, yeah. do that. But it's much more, I think it's more than that. Uh, and well, we I see know, you do if, that all the time. If
1: you, if you count psychology as science, which probably most people would to some degree, but not 100%, mm-hmm. um, then the science is absolutely vital. I don't, I don't think you can get around the science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, so like, I mean, put a bicyclist in a wind tunnel and then give them a different set of aero bars and the speed goes up by 0.03%. There's no denying that, you know, Mm -hmm. there's things all over the sport like that. And that that's one of the reasons that none of these races are the ideal race. There's almost no such thing. And you're always going to have reasons that you didn't run as fast as you potentially could, you know, like there's a book called the perfect jump about Bob Beeman's 1968 long jump Mm -hmm. in which he broke the world record by almost two feet. And it stood for 20-some years. And uh, someone finally did break it, funny enough, but that jump was called the perfect jump for very good reason. He had hit the board with no space to spare. So there was no measurement of anything he did that didn't count. He had not fallen backward and... Brushed the sand behind him when he landed with his butt, which lots of long jumpers do. You'll see mm-hmm. them slide forward, and not their heel is not the farthest forward thing. Mm. And and then uh, he also had uh, cleared something like six foot six at the middle of his jump in height. And part of that was that he was he was at it was at Mexico City, which was high altitude, eight thousand feet. So the air was thinner. So he was going through thinner air. And his speed on the runway was helped by the absolute maximum allowable tailwind, mm-hmm. which is of course an arbitrary thing. Someone mm-hmm. says, well, you can have two mile per hour tailwind, but not 2.01. Yeah. So anyway, all of these things combined to make him jump 29, two and a half. And other than that jump, had there ever been such a, a confluence of mm-hmm. elements that would make it just right. So there may have been a bunch of jumps that were potentially equivalent to that one, but they were at sea level. Or the guy jumped from eight inches behind the board and how far did he really go through the air? Mm -hmm. You know, all kinds of stuff you can't quantify really. Or you could if you had like, you know, minute observation instruments that you used on every single thing in life. But because you can't, you have to do all this guesswork. You know, like, what, what really is the best shoe? Mm -hmm. Is this Nike shoe making people 4% faster? Someone did a big uh, scientific analysis of that shoe and found that that carbon plate in it was not the factor that made it fast. It was actually the the midsole material. Mm -hmm. So in that case, all the arguments against it would go out the window because the people are arguing about whether it's fair to have something that potentially is like a spring. But isn't midsole material potentially like a spring Mm -hmm. compared to other midsole material. I mean, you know, (laughs) what, what is, what's the weight of that, so to speak. And literally, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so you know, the science, yeah, it's, it's probably almost everything. But, but then again, there's things, the intangibles, you know, like, does a person want it more than somebody else? Yeah. And I always find that very, very interesting to try to quantify that and to, to figure out, to learn a lot about that, this book. Uh, that just came out. What's that book called, Endure? Not, not Endure, Endure, Endure. endure. Yeah. Yeah. Read that book. That guy is a Canadian miler Alex who actually really good. Yeah, Hutchinson, um, he's he's found some things from lots of studies that mm-hmm. I've messed with myself, you know, and thought I was trying to find out like how your brain works. And one of them is the classic case of you're sprinting in at the end of a race. You think you're going absolutely as hard as you can. And this has happened to me 10 different times. You know, I've said, all right, 100 meters to go, I'm maxed out, you know, I'm not going to let up at all, I'm sprinting to the line. And then someone comes up alongside me. And damned if I don't go faster. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and sick. I wouldn't have known that I could. Yeah. But there's another person and somehow I'm glued to that side of that guy because I don't want him to pass me. And somehow I find something that makes me go faster. Not that I beat him, but, you know, I definitely have something else. Yeah. And there's the other one is something that the mind does... Because if you're doing something for a certain amount of time, the other day I was running on a treadmill and I had said to myself, Okay, I'm running seven miles. So when I was getting toward the seven, like I was running six and six point three or something, I started to feel as though seven was about all I could do. You know, for <laughs> mm-hmm. some reason, it's like <laughs> I was making it harder on, as I went, you know, by yeah. raising the hill and stuff. And I was thinking like, Yeah, seven, that's gonna be tough. I'm gonna get to seven though. But right before I got to the 7, I do this game that I play with myself. And I'm sure you, you may have done it yourself. I'm not sure, but you may have done it yourself. Um, I suddenly said, okay, I'm holding on to this for another half mile. Mm-hmm. And I did. You know? And I wasn't racing. But my mind changed into, now you have another half mile to go. And it had to adapt to that. And so it didn't let in the, oh, I'm almost done thing. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't any longer almost done, like two tenths away, I couldn't let up. And so I kept my focus, I kept my concentration on the, on the run, and I went right through the next half mile. But toward the end of that one, I then thought, well, thank goodness this is the end, because <laughs> I couldn't go another half. <laughs> so, so how many continues. could you You're add? You're still like, on the treadmill. Like how many could you add? Probably yeah. a whole lot, yeah. if you had to. Yeah. You know, you, they love to make that guess at like, well, if your life depended on it, how long yeah. could you stay on this treadmill, you know? And it'd be a lot longer than you do. But, yeah, have you ever done that kind of thing? I I haven't. um,
2: Yeah, I mean, it's happened to me in races, what you just defined. But what it immediately reminds me of um, is in the Breaking 2 documentary, one of the scientists is talking about, he's uh, specifically talking about Elliot Kipchoge, and he says, I can do, you know, he's a scientist, so he's on the science team of this project, Mm -hmm. and he says, I can do shoe quantifications, I can give you numbers on wind resistance, and how the atmosphere and the altitude are going to affect everything, but I have this big empty box on how do I quantify the mind? How do I quantify mm-hmm. the athlete's willingness to go beyond what yeah. they might think the limit is or what we might yeah. say the science says the limit is? And, and and he obviously translates that to, of all the athletes he has worked with, Elliot Kipchoge has had the mm-hmm. most... Mm-hmm. the strongest mind he's seen which we have, we talk about all the time his zen demeanor and how yeah, he approaches yeah. racing but that's what it reminded me of um, he, is,
1: he is really impressive and then yet if you watch a film have you ever watched the uh, I showed it to you and um, the world cross country championships one year mm-hmm. Kipchoge tries to hang with Bekele, who yes. is the master of that discipline mm-hmm. and at, at one point he just cracks Kipchoge mm-hmm. just falls apart he starts to grimace He Mm -hmm. falls way back. He ends up being passed by like three more people Mm -hmm. because he just couldn't hang with Bekele. Now, Mm -hmm. nobody in the world ever did except the one time when Bekele got overheated in in Mombasa and dropped out. But other than that, I don't think Bekele ever lost a cross-country race. Mm -hmm. And Kipchoge wasn't as good as he was at least then mm -hmm. at that kind of running. And you saw his mental weakness, which is pretty amazing to think about, that there was a way that that guy could be made to look like basically like a high school guy yeah, he, he, re- yeah. he looked like a high school guy who had given up mm-hmm. and i was shocked actually when i saw it because yeah. i'd come to this opinion of the the zen master uh, kipchoge which is not untrue i mean mm-hmm. he's really really good now yeah so. <laughs> and and it could beat bekele for any at any marathon yeah but um i, d- I don't know there's just yeah. gonna be some there's something you're always going to be up against and it's what you do with it And in that case, he couldn't handle that. But yeah, those things can be worked on, right? Like the way I was trying to mess around on the treadmill, you you have to be able to think in a race like, well, no, this is not necessarily the hardest I can go. Because I know about those other times where someone came up alongside me. So then could you do it on your own? You know, it's tricky. You have
0: many good stories about that happening in races. Can you share one with us? What kind of thing? When, End of you're, some horrible when you're race? hunting people down? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my
1: favorite one. Yes. Oh, well, the Grandmas so Marathon. Um, I was going for a personal best, and I had gotten to the 23-mile mark and was in marathon mental haze thing where I, had, I somehow managed to forget that there was a point two at the end of the race. So I I did the math and thought, well, if I keep up this pace, I'm going to personal, I'm going to run a PR by about a minute. So I was elated, you know, I had forgotten to figure in the point too. I just done three times, whatever. And, and then, you know, forgot. (laughs) So during the race, I had passed everyone who had passed me, I had passed back except for one guy. And this guy had been kind of unpleasant at the time. When he passed me, I tried to stay with him and he immediately looked gave me a look and then put on a little extra speed. and I thought, well, if you're gonna care about me that much, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And so he ran off and disappeared and I thought, oh pretty good, pretty good runner. So I came by 25 whatever miles and realized, wait a minute, here's the 26. And I have two tenths and I am not gonna run a personal best. So I was dismayed, you know? And then I, I turned this last corner at the grandma's marathon. There's a long straightaway, about 300 meter finish. Um, and I didn't, I had lost the edge, so to speak, about caring about every second, you know, because I knew I wasn't gonna PR. So I thought, do I really care if it's like five seconds one way or another as my second best time ever? Mm-hmm. I couldn't really dredge up the real passion for that, you know, mm-hmm. so I turned the corner. And who do I see, like, 50 meters in front of me but that guy. And that just galvanized me into a maniacal sprint. So I'm flying down this thing, just, you know, nothing. I, I could not want anything more now than to beat this guy. So I got every last bit out of that race. And... Um, the funny part was there were cheering crowds on both sides. And so he couldn't hear me at all. And he wasn't caring much. He was just finishing, you know, and he probably wasn't having a great day of his own, but you always want a picture of certain things in your life. You know, like there are always things that you wish you could have a picture of that. Well, I have the pictures of this, which is the only thing I could, can say the pictures I need, I have of this. And it's rare. It's really weird that they happen to do this. They photographed everybody about five meters before the finish line, and then also at the finish line. And in the picture, usually I demonstrate this with, with physical you know, <laughs> physical uh, miming of the finish of this race, but so I have to do it in words. With five meters to go, this guy to my left looks nonchalant. He's running normal. And I'm behind him with my knee coming up level and my face with my eyes bugging out like you know, like Usain Bolt and with my hands up like at the level of my head trying to sprint and catch him. He doesn't even know I'm there. The picture at the line, I'm leaning like a sprinter with my hands back behind me. And I'm beating him by, like, two feet, and he's looking over at me with a very funny expression on his face, like, kind of startled, like, what the heck? Where'd that guy come from? And and it just makes my day to have that to look at, because... It was my second fastest marathon. And it, that 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 finish did get me under one thirty one, two thirty one. That's amazing. So I was pleased about that. It was a two thirty fifty
0: eight. I love second. that you rounded the corner that you saw. Him. Like yeah, okay. he was you sitting were like, there like a
1: big fat target. Oh <laughs> uh, know you're like, like,
2: but not that guy. guy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Big fat target. The, the other one that you'll remember and I'll do this much faster is the time that I didn't care at all about my Boston finish because I was running a bad day and I turned that corner onto Boylston Street and saw a guy with bobbing antennas on his head in front of me and that would not do like I couldn't have that guy ahead of me so I again sprinted like a maniac and got ahead of him but then had to continue to sprint I realized because I didn't want him in my picture so I said if I'm not going to look like I accomplished anything if there's a guy with antennas in my picture right behind me so he had these bob bug antennas, running a whole Boston Marathon. In the 230s, who does that? Yeah,
0: seriously.
2: Since we are on the story topic, you have to tell the story of you and John John Honnerkamp at Berlin.
1: About the Zenos (laughs) Zenos paradox of the watch. Yes, that's my favorite. That and
2: and John's comment. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, So... He and I were coaching together before group training. We had a little group that we coached in the park and had become pretty close friends. We both worked at Roadrunners. This is John Honekamp, who was an Olympic trials 800 meter runner, but had managed to get up all the way to the marathon. He's a really good 10K. He'd run 30.04 for wow. 10K. But marathon was probably a little out of his <laughs> ideal race distance. But he did run, I think, at 244 in his first try. Whoa. And he wanted to try to run 230. Now, my coaching instincts told me this was not smart on his <laughs> part. And I tried to get him to try to run 236. I said, you know, John, six minutes pace, I think you could do. 2:37, 12, a six minute pace. Why don't you try to break that? No, no, th- 230, I really think I, I really think I shoot for that. I can handle that. Because he, he looked at his other events, and they equate to much faster than 230. But, you know, you can only go up so mm-hmm. far until you're mm-hmm. not in your comfort zone anymore. So. Anyway, I wanted to run 250 and I was trying to break 250 for the fifth decade, which I ended up not doing there, but did later. And, um, so I'm running my race. I'm getting to realize that my calf is hurt and not going to let me run as fast as I want. And the three hour pace group passed me, which is a miserable experience. (laughs) And, and when I was just deciding to run it in, you know, and not care anymore, I see John on the side of the road walking, Mm -hmm. this is a 20 miles. And I immediately had to, you know, exhort him to get back in the race and, and run with me. I said, come on, John, I'm doing like nine minute miles. You can do this. Let's go. And he <laughs> did. He took, took it on. Like, why not get out of here a little faster? You know? Right. <laughs> so we start off, you know, we don't care anymore. And people are passing us like 2000 people passed us. <laughs> this is a Berlin marathon, you know, big field. And, and it's a warm day. And he's got one of these GPS watches on that tells him what pace he's doing. And it also had a feature that told him how much longer he would have to run if he's going at the pace he's going. So he looks at his watch at one point and he says, okay, we got another half hour. I said, All right, half hour, that's pretty darn long, but we can do this, you know? And we run another mile and many more people pass us. And we pass one guy who's walking <laughs> and on the side of the road and to which John said, we smoked that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I always like that comment obviously didn't mean it but uh uh as we get to the next mile marker he looks at his watch again and he says wait wait a minute we still have a half
0: hour <laughs> that's awful <laughs>
1: and this is because we've slowed down now and the time it will take us at our new pace is yet another half hour even though we're now at like 24 miles oh, or three, 23 miles yeah, we ran really slow for the end of that race. Mm-hmm.
0: But you, but what was your finish time? Like 3.11. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny.
1: You both run faster than that.
0: So one other favorite story is when you're racing and you're trying to figure out like what age group the guys are in that you're racing.
1: Oh, the one in Philly? <laughs> you really want these stories? Yes. Okay. So Philadelphia Marathon, I had turned 50, and I wanted to try to win the 50-year-old division. And the course is designed to help you out a little because with about uh, six miles to go, it turns back at Manayunk out in Philly, you run along the Schuylkill River. So you go out and then you turn around and come back the same, same way. So as the people that were in the lead of the race came back toward me, of course, I was looking at them to see if any of them looked 50. And uh, (laughs) I was hoping I was in the lead of that. And this is a 26 degree day, by the way. So I'm running all the mittens and big thick socks and foot warmers and all that stuff. And and I, I got to about 20, no, the 20 mile mark. I got to a point at which the, the people are coming back toward me and I see a guy coming and yeah, this guy looks old. He's definitely 50 and he's got like very little hair, white hair. And he's got a kind of a halting running style, mm-hmm. like a stiff style. And I thought, oh shoot. Well, yeah, he could, he, he, maybe he's in the 55s, but, but that doesn't matter. I've still got to beat him or I can't call myself a 50 plus mm-hmm. winner, you know, so. I had the presence of mind to look at where we were on the course. I looked across the street and saw a storefront. And I thought, "All right, when I turn that 180 degree turn and come back here, I'll look at my watch and see how big of a lead he has on me. So he goes by, I go out to where the turnaround is, I come back, look at my watch, it's like a minute 13. And I thought, okay, I've got like Five miles to go now, and I have to make up a minute 13. Well, that's not impossible, but it's going to entail a pretty big risk. Like, mm-hmm. I don't usually try to make a move in a marathon with like five miles to go. Right. That's what the leaders do, that's right. what the, right. <laughs> the world class guys do. But I've I almost never negative split a marathon. Usually, there'll be a minute or so positive split on a good day. Mm-hmm. So I'm running back and think now I get to the point where I know how far I have to go, and I think to catch him. Do I care more about beating this guy and winning the fifties or do I care more about running my best possible time? Because if I go out on a limb, I may really fall apart. I know I, I feel, I want to try to win the division. I'll, i make, make the effort. So I, I, you know, throw down my big move with five miles to go thinking I've got to try to catch him. So the, the, the rest of the course is curvy along the river. And when you turn any corner, you only see like another 200 meters or so. So I kept turning these big curved corners and not seeing the guy. But with about two and a half miles to go, I saw him. And so now I knew I'd made up a lot of ground. And then I started doing the same thing, looking at him passing a, an, a landmark of some sort, you know, a street sign. Mm-hmm. And then I time myself, I get there. And now it's only like 24 seconds, you know, so whatever. So I'm going to get him. I can tell I'm going to get him. So I have to make a real strong move past him because, you know, these mm-hmm. are old masters runners. They know what they're doing. They want to, you know, try to hang with you, maybe. So I have to fake him out maybe a little bit and they can think I'm just really, really flying by him. So I do that. I pass him. I don't look at all. I just look ahead, continue on really pushing it. And then I start to realize I'm now suffering from this move I've made and I'm really starting to struggle and oh, he's looking at my back. And I just like, didn't want to look back cause that's death. You know, you look back and someone's going to know you're like a, mm-hmm. you're a potential you know, victim. So, so I just kept looking ahead and hoping I didn't fall apart enough for him to catch back up to me. And I about a mile ago, I threw off my hat and mittens and ran the last mile with it, you know, really it was a big effort, like a, one of the harder marathon finishes in my life because I had really gone out on a limb. So I finished a race and I am wiped. I go to the medical area, I get warmed up, I get mm. in some, they wrap me up in uh-huh. something and I get some hot drink and I'm sitting around just recovering for like an hour, which is not usually how I mm-hmm. have to finish a marathon. So after that, I finally go out, and it's one of these races where they have the board up afterward with all the results on it in big sheets. So I'm looking down the result list, and you know there's all the young guys, and then I come, start seeing the 40 people, and then I start looking for 50. Like, where am I? Where am I? And I don't see any 50s before me, so I won the 50s, so yes, okay, I won the 50s. Now, where did that guy finish? And I look back, and I see where he finished, and he finished right behind me but he was 48. <laughs> <laughs> the next 50 year old finisher was like eight minutes behind oh me and this guy had looked so old, but he was only 48. And I, I first was, you know, embarrassed and silly how silly that whole thing had been but then i realized that guy gave me a great (laughs) race yeah amazing he made me work really really hard it goes
2: to like the earlier point of what you were saying when some this when you're talking about the science like someone coming up it's like that's a short but this was like five miles before yeah i
1: had to really well i didn't know i was going to catch him at all you know for all i knew he was going faster than i was the whole time but when i started to see him then i knew i'd made up like 40 seconds at that point
0: I love these but, stories because it just shows that you're you're a competitor, you know? yeah, that's
1: but the cool. thing is you know like you love these people that's the thing mm-hmm. yeah. like that's yeah. what i've always yeah. tried to get across is that that guy helped me, and yeah. so did that other guy that i didn't mm-hmm. like much. you know, yeah. he made me faster that day at grandma's, yeah, and you know he was sort of a jerk when he passed me, but you know we're doing the same thing like yeah, we're, exactly. we're both run, running marathons at the same speed i'm probably very similar in most ways to mm-hmm. these yeah. people yeah. i've always found that weird that people will. Like when I was in high school, people on the, the cross country team that I was on would often disparage people on the other teams, mm-hmm. like, oh, we're gonna crush them, or they're a bunch of geeks, or they're a bunch of this or that. And I would think like, these are the people doing what we do. Like they're <laughs> they are the weird little group in yeah. that school that that went out for the cross country team. Like how many people are we gonna find in the world that are more like us than yeah, those guys? So and true. yet we were making them the enemy. And that's where I arrived at this thing mm-hmm. I always tell people now, that you're doing something together that none of you could do by yourself. Yeah. Like if you put one guy on a cross-country course, how fast would he go? Not as fast as they all run when they're trying to race each other, and racing each other doesn't mean you don't like each other, it means yeah. you're trying to get the best out of each other and ourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah that's true. So I think we have some miles to run but Okay. before we do that. Uh, this whole episode has been a training tip, but if you had one training tip to give our listeners, what would it be?
1: One training tip that I would say applies to almost everybody, and the shorter the race, the more it applies, is become comfortable with a pace faster than the race that you want to run. is going to make you run. That'll do two things. One, when you run the race, you'll have the sensation of, of calm and not a tension, not tension because you've already run this pace a lot. You know what it is but you've run faster, so therefore you've got gears in reserve, and when you get down toward the end of the race, you'll be running faster pace than the average you figured out you might be able to do. So to negative split the race, you've gotta run quite a bit of it faster than this average that you've set for Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. So say, okay, we use the old three-hour marathon, that's 6.51 per mile. So if you negative split that race, you're gonna have to run some Mm 6.40-somethings um and all the few people negative split marathons let's say it was a half so if you're running halves and you you know half you're trying to run 130 the second half of that race should be sub 1 sub 130 pace so sub 651 miles so i would like for the runner trying to do that to be very very comfortable running say 640s okay. because then you're backing off to race pace mm-hmm. And that's what you need to feel like you're doing because if it's the fastest pace you tend to run, you're not relaxed. And then again, if you've done pace like six minute pace as well, then at the end of that race, you're not even going to be uncomfortable. If you have to run six minute pace at the end to out sprint somebody or to Mm -hmm. get the last seconds out of your time or whatever it might be, you have that kind of running in you as well. So use lots of different training speeds and. One of them being considerably faster, or you know, a nice a nice margin faster than the race pace you want to do in your upcoming race. I'll bet you Ben Delaney before he just ran his 41:27, ran a lot of 400s and things at like six minute pace or better. In fact, I think his last workout was ten 400s or eight 400s eight. at. At under under nineties, yeah, one yeah,
2: yeah all four hundreds and one starting at one twenty eight
1: down to one twenty five. Yeah. So he was comfortable cruising for two and a half miles, two miles that day, at sub six minute pace. Mm-hmm. So his legs had that gear, and his legs have that familiarity. He knows what that feels like, that kind of stride, where his foot is landing, all the things that go into that speed. He's backing off from that to run his ten k pace, mm-hmm. and so the ten k pace should feel like c- cruising comfortable almost like jogging for a few miles so that's my that's my tip kind of long one that's great thank yeah. you yep
0: thanks for spending so much time with us You're
2: welcome. this was a really i think really really productive episode for really for us and for our listeners we'll, yeah. we'll obviously let you know what the all feedback right. is but th- thank you so much for giving us all this time
1: thank you Stephen. let's go around all right <laughs> see
0: you next friday